Welcome to the Emergency Medicine Cases Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Anton Hellman, bringing you Canada's brightest minds in emergency medicine from EMC Studios in Toronto. In episode 67 on pediatric pain management with Dr. Samina Ali and Dr. Anthony Croco, we discussed the use of triage-initiated pain protocols, intranasal fentanyl, intranasal ketamine, the dangers of codeine, skin analgesics for venipuncture, and a lot more. But we didn't get around to talking about procedural sedation for things like fracture reduction and complicated laceration repair. Very common presentations that I see at North York General on almost every shift. In that episode, we also drove home five key points that are eloquently summed up by our guest expert on this episode, Dr. Amy Drendel, in five simple clinical pearls. And here they are. Number one. Reassessment is the key to effective pain treatment in the ED. Number two. Ibuprofen is very effective for treating pediatric pain, but some kids will need more than ibuprofen for optimal pain treatment. Number three. Proper pain treatment and utilization of sedation when needed will result in increased procedural success, reduced pain experience during fracture procedures, and patient family satisfaction. It's worth taking the time, and the risks are low. Number four. Treatment of pain can actually help you make the right diagnosis. Number five. Talk to parents about a pain treatment plan for home. Most kids have pain after discharge from the ED, but most parents do not treat the pain at home. So this time around, with the help of Dr. Drendel, a world leader in pediatric pain research and education from the Children's Hospital of Wisconsin, we're going to discuss best practices and options in three common clinical scenarios. A displaced distal radius fracture, sedation for a kid requiring a CT scan, and sedation for doing an LP. It's my hope that by the end of this episode, you'll gain the knowledge and confidence to manage procedural sedation like a seasoned pro. So welcome, Dr. Drendel, to EM Cases. Thanks so much. It's great to be here. So let's jump into our first case. A 10-year-old morbidly obese boy comes in after a foosh in the playground. He appears very anxious when you examine him. His x-ray shows a distal radius fracture requiring reduction. So let's say you've decided to do procedural sedation for this kitty and the child hasn't received any analgesics at home or at triage. To bridge the gap until the sedation starts, what analgesics would you recommend? And in particular, do you recommend intranasal fentanyl in this kind of setting? Sure, absolutely. So this kind of injury is something that you commonly see in the emergency department, right? There's probably two type of patients that come in with these types of injuries. There's the one that's obviously deformed, that you need to do something right here, right now to take care of that acute pain experience. And for that kid, I think intranasal fentanyl is the way to go. You can quickly address the pain 
You can give the pain medication within 15 minutes. That child's going to have pain relief, anxiety relief. The family's going to be able to relax, and you're going to be able to get a proper exam, including proper radiographs, to really know what you're going to do with that child. The other child that comes in is maybe not so acute, not so obvious of a fracture. And those children, if they've got the severe pain, and we're talking pain that's maybe 8 to 10 on a 10-point scale, then maybe intranasal fentanyl is the route to go for them as well, even though it might not be deformed. But for mild or moderate pain, the best option is actually to try an oral analgesic. You could try ibuprofen if it's not severe pain, or even possibly an oral opioid to kind of bridge the gap between the initial assessment, completing the gradiographs, which some studies suggest is the most painful part of their evaluation, and then making the final decision about reduction. Great. Okay. We had covered a little bit about intranasal fentanyl in the previous podcast on pediatric pain management. I just want to review a couple of the key points there. One is the dosing, and the general rule of thumb there is that you'll need about twice the IV dose, which in this case of intranasal fentanyl will be one to two micrograms per kilogram to a maximum of 100 micrograms. In case you didn't get that intranasal fentanyl dose the first time, let's repeat that. In this case of intranasal fentanyl will be one to two micrograms per kilogram to a maximum of 100 micrograms. And remember that if the kid's nose is full of snot, that you probably want to choose something besides an intranasal medication because it's just not going to get absorbed. It does have a rapid onset. The administration is painless. It has a high bioavailability. So those were a couple of things that we talked about in the previous one. Do you have any other tricks and pearls about intranasal medications? Sure. Sometimes it does take a little bit of discussion with the family. There are some families that aren't as familiar with the intranasal medication dosing. The new intranasal flu um, myths now make it a little bit more acceptable to families, so they kind of know what's coming. The kids even know how to accept that medication a little bit more easily. But there are some families that think that this might be analogous to snorting cocaine or something that might not be as pleasing. So I usually have a little discussion with the family about how this medication works so effectively. I don't even have to put an IV in. It'll be a painless way to get the medication on board very quickly. So that's one thing that is probably worth talking to families about. And then for the child, what I see our nurses do that's really effective is they tell them to take a deep breath in like they're smelling a flower, and that really distributes the dose very effectively. You want to get the most concentrated form of fentanyl that you have available because you don't want to put a high volume of medication into the nostril because much of it won't actually be absorbed into that nasal mucosa. It'll just go down the back of the throat and be a swallowed dose, which is still effective, but not optimal. And there's actually some great work coming out of Columbia now trying to figure out the optimal dose that is best to be administered. Um, And you want to split that dose between two nostrils if it's the higher end of the spectrum more of the 100 mics per kilo, split it into either nostril. And that'll help for the bioavailability issue as well. Some great pearls there. So let's say you've given the intranasal fentanyl and you've brought the child into your area where you're going to be doing the procedural sedation. What's your take on allowing family members to stay at the bedside with the child as they're being sedated 
and letting the family stay in the room while the procedure is actually being performed. You know, some people get really squeamish when it comes to reducing a fracture, for example. How do you usually counsel parents in that regard? Sure. Sure. I think keeping the family close can be helpful to you, especially with an anxious child in the initial stages. If you've got a family member that is advocating for that child, supporting that child, distracting that child, that's always going to be a positive and going to help the whole situation. But you do have to be careful to pick out patients that might not be helping you as much as you would like and maybe redirect them and try to teach them some distraction or teach them more soothing approaches to helping their child in their anxiety response or their pain response. In general, I think family presence is good. I will say for fracture reductions, I usually have the family step out during the actual fracture procedure. So once the child is sedated and no longer conscious, having them step out so that the procedure can go along more effectively is probably optimal because there's nothing like having two patients when the mom goes down and you're trying to do the sedation for the fracture reduction. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I do the same thing. Before we get into drugs and things, let's review some of the airway issues that we might run into with procedural sedation in kids. We know that children are at higher risk for airway obstruction in general than adults because they have smaller caliber airways and they have floppy airways that are subject to collapse when they're relaxed. Not to mention their larger tongues that tend to occlude the airway, the larger occiput that tends to shove the neck into a flex position when they're lying supine on a stretcher. There's all these anatomical issues that you have to think about. What should we be doing at the bedside to help mitigate the potential nasty consequences of these anatomical issues with kids? I think preparation is always key. You want to be prepared for the worst in these kind of situations. Although rare is the respiratory event that is associated with the sedation in the emergency department setting, I think always being ready for that worst case scenario is a good idea. So doing a really thorough examination to make sure that you have a good assessment of the oral cavity and the airway, I think is a good start. Having the right equipment available is also a very important piece to really having a safe sedation. So having your suction equipment set up, ready to go, having your oxygen right at hand and available should you need it, and then actually positioning yourself in a way that if you do need to intervene with that airway, that you're in the right place at the right time to be able to effectively maintain that airway, whether it is doing a jaw thrust or repositioning, it might be all that you need in those kind of scenarios. Okay. What about for the tiny little kids? I mean, this kid's old enough that we don't worry too much about these anatomical considerations. What about the little tiny, like three-month-olds or two-month-old that you need to do procedural sedation on for whatever reason? Yeah, I would definitely hesitate to do a procedural sedation on a child less than three months of age, just because anatomically, I think they are a high-risk group. As well, just neurodevelopmentally, there's a lot of questions about what the optimal treatment plan is as far as procedural sedation is concerned. And I think in a child less than three months of age, I would probably delegate that to my anesthesiologist to help assist. Over three months of age, there have been 
good evidence that ketamine would be a safe approach. And I think if you have the right equipment available, should any respiratory depression happen and you're confident with your skills, I think that that would be appropriate age to start considering doing that on an an emergent basis. Okay, great. And what about distraction techniques? You know, sometimes I, uh, I have some very creative people in the room trying to distract the child with all kinds of imagery and things. What, what does the literature say about distraction techniques? I mean, does it actually work? Is it worth trying? And if it is worth trying, what kind of distraction techniques would you recommend? I think there's definitely a place for distraction techniques. Many of them can reduce anxiety a lot, and distraction in and of itself can help you to redirect a lot of energy that might be placed towards the anxiety and pain experience of the procedure. So iPads and iPhones and any type of laptop computer have really revolutionized what we can do in the emergency department, even without the assistance of child life. But all of these games really distract the mind from what the body is experiencing. And I think there's really great evidence to support their use. And that's another way that you can use your family member to really help you to optimize the procedural sedation is to have them engage the child in their favorite game. And that can really help move things along in a positive way. Okay, great. So distraction techniques, thumbs up. Let's talk about the history that you run through before you're about to start the procedural sedation. You talked about how preparation was so important. What are some of the key historical things that you want to know before you even start any sedation? Sure. The first thing I always talk to families about is whether or not the child has actually undergone a procedural sedation in the past and whether that's been successful, because that's a good segue to get the family on track to what your plan is and also get a very um, good idea about what has been successful in the past. Next, you want to know about their past medical history. Things like a history of asthma might increase their risk depending on the medication that you choose. You also want to get a good sense of what their current medical history is like. Things like viral upper respiratory infections can also be a risk and one that you might want to get a better sense of before you move forward with your procedural sedation as well. You want to do a good physical exam as well to get a sense of where you're at. And then definitely assess for things like allergies and other potential medication interactions that you might be concerned about as well. Okay. In particular, what about the issue of fasting? You know, I know in the adult literature, it's kind of debunked that it really matters if they took a sip of water within the last few hours. You know, still in our hospital, when patients go to the OR, if it's non-emergent, then they'll delay the OR if the patient, you know, had a French fry four hours ago. What does the pediatric literature say in terms of fasting, whether we can go ahead with the procedural sedation or not, depending on when the last time they had anything to eat or drink? Yeah, that's a great question and one that I think has continued to plague us. And I think the pediatric literature aligns very well with the adult literature in that there's not a lot of support for the prolonged fasting and the risk associated with vomiting or any respiratory complications. 
a recent large study out of Denver showed that, in fact, kids who had been fasting for two hours, four hours, six hours, eight hours, their risk of vomiting and respiratory compromise was exactly the same across all periods of time as far as fasting is concerned. So unfortunately, at this point, there's not a lot of evidence to support fasting. I know because of the anesthesia literature, we're a little more hesitant to move forward, right? Because our anesthesia colleagues are so conservative on this measure. So I'll say in my experience, I typically take that route of three to four hours and I'll do that sedation. But if it's an emergent sedation, if it's life or limb threatening, then you got to do it, right? Absolutely. In terms of choosing your medication for sedation, I imagine that some medications are more likely to cause vomiting. So in terms of your decision of whether to wait another three or four hours or not, let's say you really feel like you need to do the sedation for whatever reason, not life or limb, but you're thinking you need to do it. What medications can you choose that'll minimize the risk of vomiting? Vomiting is definitely a concern and probably the most common adverse effect, right? Ketamine is the medication that is my typical go-to as far as procedural sedation is concerned, especially for a child with an arm fracture where the analgesic effects and the amnestic effects as well as the sedation effects is just like the perfect cocktail for that kind of procedure. You know, other options like propofol might reduce the risk, but you've got the risk of respiratory compromise that's associated with that. That would make me a little bit more concerned as well. Some would choose nitrous oxide in that kind of situation, but, you know, nitrous also has the risk of vomiting that's probably comparable to ketamine. The other alternative approach to the child where you might be worried about emesis, especially adolescents in particular are more prone to emesis, is to maybe add um, Dancitron to your mix, and that might actually reduce your risk of vomiting. Oh, that's an interesting one. I I understand there's some literature out there about adding anti-emetics. What does the literature say? Yeah, there's been some recent work that has shown ketamine plus ondansetron is a great mix. Ketamine has maybe a 5% risk of emesis that's associated with it. Your use of ondansetron reduces that risk by quite a bit. Number needed to treat is somewhere around 9. So really pretty good chance of making a difference, I think. Especially, again, if you look at the adolescents who are at higher risk of emesis, that can really make a difference. Historically, there's been some literature that suggests the addition of a benzo might also reduce your risk of vomiting, but that never made sense to me to add a medication that didn't specifically block vomiting when you have an antiemetic that would be very effective. So I think if you're concerned about emesis, that ondansetron is really shown in the pediatric literature to be the go-to medication to reduce your risk of emesis associated with ketamine. Okay, so if your kitty just had a burger an hour or two ago and you feel like you need to do the sedation, even though ketamine has a higher risk of vomiting than propofol, you have the choice of adding ondansetron to that, which has a number needed to treat of nine to reduce vomiting. Or if the child's older, you might want to go for propofol, which has less risk of vomiting in the first place. You got it. All right. 
So in terms of intravenous medications for procedural sedation, we've talked about ketamine, we've talked a bit about propofol. What about Atomidate? You know, in adults, we do still use Atomidate because its hemodynamic profile is really good, even though there's some concerns about adrenal suppression and it's pretty controversial in sepsis, for example, in adults, whether Atomidate is a good choice or not. What about in kids? What does the literature say about the use of Atomidate for procedural sedation in kids and in general for kids? What should our listeners know about Atomidate for children? There's a little bit of research to support the use of Atomidate in children in that we know that it's safe. We know that it, again, has a similar very favorable hemodynamic profile. It's quick onset, but it's also a pretty short duration. So you definitely need to pick your procedure if you're going to choose Atomidate as your sedative. It can be used for a head CT, especially if you're worried about intracranial pressure. Could be used for an orthopedic procedure, but as you know, it can be associated with myoclonus. And generally, you need a little bit more time for your fracture reduction. So not always the optimal choice, but definitely one to have in your back pocket in case you need it for those unusual situations. And absolutely safe to use with kids. So we've talked a little bit about ketofol, the combination of ketamine and propofol. We've talked about ketamine and midazolam. What about what we used to use in the old days quite often was the combination of fentanyl and midazolam. Is there any role for using that combination in procedural sedation these days? Fentanyl and midazolam does bring back the good old days, I think. And sometimes people go to that, I think, with kids because they feel like it was a medication combination that was tried and true in the good old days. But in fact, fentanyl and midazolam in the pediatric population is generally not recommended for procedural sedation for kids because it is associated with much higher rates of adverse effects, including respiratory depression, apnea, and poor outcomes and really has been replaced by these other new medications that have really been shown to be much more effective and safe in the pediatric population. So let's go back to the case here. This morbidly obese child has never had a general anesthetic or complications from an anesthetic before. He's otherwise healthy, and he's been well aside from a minor upper respiratory tract infection. Now let's say you've decided to give more fentanyl because the child appears to still be in pain as you're setting up your sedation. You're getting the team assembled and the nurse tells you that the child is desatting. So what's going on here? What would you do to remedy this situation? Sure. Any patient that's receiving an opioid analgesic, the one thing that opioids are known to cause is respiratory depression. So in this child who is already obese and might have an obstructed airway, who's further relaxed by the opioid and might even have a decreased respiratory rate because of that, might actually start to desaturate if, in fact, his level of consciousness is starting to decrease that's being associated with that opioid response. So first thing is I would want to open up that airway and check his respiratory effort to make sure that we're not having any complications that's associated with the opioid that was meant to treat his pain. Okay. I understand that there are published risk factors for 
so-called failed sedation, meaning the patient gets hypoxic and apneic. What are the kind of risk factors that we should be thinking about in terms of a failed sedation? Sure. So this child who's obese, who might have a history of sleep apnea, is one of those risk factors. Actually, older children are associated with more failed sedations, a history of upper respiratory tract infections. And then when you start getting into ASA class greater than two, those are all at higher risk for the failed sedation. Okay. So this obese kid who's got the sniffles and who's older than seven years old, he's high risk for a failed sedation. So this is the kind of kid that you really want to be careful in. You want to be prepared for this guy. Okay. All right. It turns out that our patient was given an erroneous dose of fentanyl. So this kid was at high risk for a so-called failed sedation. And it drives home the point that we really need to be prepared. We had talked about assembling your equipment. Let's just talk a little bit more about the specifics of how to prepare you know, some of these basic things we sometimes forget to do when we're when we're in a rush in the emergency department. So can you just run through for us the sort of checklist of what we should go through to prepare? Sure. So I'll start by saying that most hospitals have their policies and procedures on procedural sedation on some specific requirements that you need to fulfill. So definitely keeping with your hospital guidelines is really important. Most guidelines include cardiovascular monitoring, so having them on a cardiac monitor so you can monitor heart rate and respiratory rate, having the patients on a pulse ox so you have a good sense of their oxygen saturation. Having capnography is a nice addition because typically it will pick up on respiratory depression faster than your pulse ox actually will, although eyes on the chest is really the most effective way of knowing whether or not you have a patient that has good respiratory effort. That takes a good sedationist, but it also probably takes a nurse who's dedicated to the administration and monitoring of that patient as well. So you can get into tricky spots where you're trying to do the procedural sedation as well as the procedure itself, but having that dedicated person monitoring the patient is extremely important to make sure that you're going to have a successful sedation. All right. The more the merrier, I guess, in that that sedation room. Absolutely. (laughs) Bring them all in. Bring in your friends. So since Dr. Drendel's go-to medication for procedural sedation in general is ketamine, she's going to get a little bit more into detail about all the aspects of ketamine that you need to know for procedural sedation in kids. My go-to medication for this kind of a case is probably ketamine. And generally for pediatric sedations in the emergency department setting, ketamine is a successful agent. It's got sedative, analgesic, and amnestic effects, which is like the trifecta, right? It's got everything that you would want as far as sedation is concerned. Typical dosing is one to two milligrams per kilogram IV, and typically you have onset between one one and five minutes. Your duration's about 10 to 15 minutes in that case, and recovery time is generally an hour after that, so not an unreasonable approach at all. There are some contraindications to using ketamine, and we talked about that before, being age less than three months 
or a concern for history of schizophrenia are absolute contraindications. There's some relative contraindications that's mostly associated with the concern for laryngospasm that can be associated with ketamine use. So laryngeal stimulation, any airway instability, a relative contraindication would be an active upper respiratory infection or an active asthma exacerbation. And there are some concerns about its use with increased ICP or intraocular pressure, though there's some studies that suggest that we shouldn't be so worried about that after all. But it's a great medication and really pretty effective. So just a quick ketamine review there. The dose of ketamine is 1.5 milligrams per kilogram IV, the range from 1 to 2 milligrams per kilogram, slow IV push. It has an onset between 1 and 5 minutes and a duration of effective sedation, analgesia, and amnesia, the glorious trifecta of ketamine, for about 10 to 15 minutes with a recovery time of about 1 hour. Pretty good. Intramuscular ketamine is dosed at 4 to 5 milligrams per kilogram, which can be used as well, say, in the developmentally delayed child that you can't get an IV on, but it prolongs the recovery time to about 90 minutes, and it makes it a bit more difficult to redose as well. Remember that ketamine is contraindicated in kids less than three months and kids with known schizophrenia. Next, Dr. Dendel is going to talk about an exciting new paper on the horizon when it comes to using ketamine for sedation for kids. I will say there's some interesting studies that are coming out of St. Louis at Washington University with Bo Kennedy's group. And they're looking at this rapid push approach and have some pilot data that's been studied. And they're using smaller doses with rapid pushes that allows you to hit a dissociative state quickly and then also recover quickly. So they've got some really promising stuff that you're going to have to watch for in the future. And hopefully that will really help turnaround time, which can sometimes be a downfall to the ketamine sedation. So I'm really curious about this rapid administration technique of ketamine. Up till now, we've been giving one and a half or two milligrams per kilogram slow IV push for procedural sedation. What kind of protocols are we talking about here with the rapid administration? Like what kind of doses over how long? Sure. They've got a pilot study that was a dose finding study in about 60 kids And they estimate a minimum consistent effective dose of 0.8 milligrams per kilogram. And they do that as an IV push. And that results in about 25 minutes of sedation time. And really it's most effective with a single dose of ketamine. Really promising stuff that hopefully with the larger sample size will give us a better sense of how that's going to work. So far, their adverse effects are comparable to what we see with the typical dosing and really could be an exciting way of giving a smaller dose, but really getting that effective dissociative state Wow! for a shorter period of time. Okay. Yeah. Well, pilot study doesn't mean we should be adopting the practice quite yet. So we'll have to wait for uh, a big multi-centered study that's validated to change the practice. But that sounds pretty exciting. Now, what about propofol in kids? You know, some people are using a combination of ketamine and propofol, so-called ketofol. We use that not infrequently in adults. What's the concern in general with propofol in children? 
Yeah, so propofol probably hasn't been adopted as strongly in the pediatric population as the adult centers because the pediatric anesthesiologists have held tight to it. And there are risks of respiratory depression that are associated with it that have been concerning, especially when there's been such strong adoption of the ketamine and it's been quite an effective medication for the sedation of kids. I'll say in my practice, I don't use propofol, although there are a lot of published papers that support the safe use of propofol and additionally, the safe use of ketofol as definitely alternatives that are effective ways of sedating kids in a safe way and in an effective way in order to successfully complete procedures. Okay, so that's ketamine and propofol or ketofol. What about the combination of ketamine and midazolam? I've heard some mixed things about that. You know, I guess the idea is that the midazolam will help to prevent some of the possible emergence reactions that some kids will get with ketamine. What's your take on using midazolam in combination with ketamine? There are some people that had historically used ketamine with midazolam with the hope that midazolam would reduce the chances of emergence phenomenon that is known to be associated with ketamine. In fact, the studies show that that emergence phenomenon is actually not as common as one once thought in kids in particular. So that has led to reduced use of midazolam. And then additionally, there's a couple of good pediatric studies that have actually shown that the addition of midazolam to ketamine does not reduce the risk of that emergence phenomenon. The one thing that midazolam can do for your ketamine sedation is actually prolong its duration. So if you're actually looking at maybe a complex laceration repair and you're having to redose the ketamine frequently, midazolam will actually allow for a longer sedation period. In, in fact, on the flip side, a longer recovery period. So that is the one thing that studies show is that ketamine plus midazolam results in a longer period of sedation for kids. The other thing that midazolam has been shown to do is, again, reduce vomiting. And though sometimes could be looked at as an effective approach, I think the use of ondansetron with ketamine is probably a better approach if you're concerned about emesis that's associated with ketamine. Okay, great. And what about nitrous oxide? Let's say your resuscitation room's tied up for hours and your ED policy says that all procedural sedation with IV meds requires monitoring in a resuscitation room. What alternatives do you have to IV medications for procedural sedation for fractures? Sure. I think in that case, you might consider using nitrous oxide as an alternative, especially for fractures that you might actually be able to get good pain relief by just doing maybe a digital block for a finger laceration or a distal extremity fracture. Nitrous oxide provides a good level of analgesia, anxiety relief, and some pain control that has been shown to be effective 
for fracture reduction. Further, if you have a forearm reduction, there are some good studies out of St. Louis that show a nitrous oxide plus hematoma block is just as effective as an IV ketamine sedation and results in a quicker recovery time. So that might be a really great option if you're comfortable doing a hematoma block and really allows for good pain relief as well as a quick recovery time. Okay, great. Let's talk a little bit more about nitrous oxide. In my department, I don't have any experience with it, uh, and I imagine that there's some other emergency providers who don't either. Just the basics about nitrous oxide. Like, what are some of the safety concerns? How do you dose it? What kind of recovery do you expect? You had mentioned that the recovery times are faster. Can you just tell us a little bit more about the practicalities of using nitrous oxide? Sure. Nitrous oxide is a weak dissociative anesthetic, and it gives a rapid, reliable change in the depth of analgesia and sedation. So the beauty of this medication is you breathe it in, three minutes later, you've got good anxiolysis and analgesia, and you take that nitrous off, and three minutes later, you're back to baseline. So for those that you really need a quick recovery time, it's a great medication. It is typically dosed using a gas system that contains both an oxygen and a nitrous tank. Depending on the nitrous that you're using, some nitrous machines allow you the control over the percent nitrous that you're delivering to the patient, which is a really nice thing because you can actually titrate to the depth of sedation that you need up to 70%. Others just allow for the straight 50% dose of nitrous, um, which is sometimes easier to handle and is a more efficient delivery system that's available to many emergency departments. It's typically dosed somewhere between 10 and 70%. You can add an opioid or a benzo to get a deeper sedative effect. And I find it to be most effective for those procedures that are anxiety-provoking. So, for example, if you have a laceration repair that you know is well anesthetized with the topical anesthetics, but the patient's very anxious because they're concerned about the needle, nitrous gives you really good anxiolytic effect that's very effective. Another way that I commonly use nitrous is for genitourinary exams, Though not a painful procedure, is sometimes an anxiety-provoking procedure, especially for those young girls or young teens. So using nitrous can relax them and take away that anxiety and allow you to really accomplish that procedure and bring them back to their baseline within three minutes of removing the nitrous delivery system. Wow. So it sounds like there's a lot of uses for nitrous oxide. I think I'm going to ask my chief about that, whether we can get that on board in our department. What about IM ketamine? So we've talked a lot about IV ketamine. If you're in a situation where you have difficulty getting an IV, is IM, intramuscular ketamine, a good option in your opinion? 
Absolutely. IM ketamine is a great approach, especially if you're not able to get IV access. Typically dosed at four to five milligrams per kilogram IM. You'll get onset of effect usually within about five minutes. Duration, again, about 20 minutes, although your recovery time is typically longer, more like 60 to 120 minutes, but is a really nice way of getting a good ketamine effect without the IV access. Now, if I was given the choice between IV and IM, I would definitely choose the IV ketamine over the IM just because redosing, I think, is a much more reliable way of delivering the medication via IV. And then as well, if you're worried about complications, having the IV access is nice for a case of procedural sedation. But especially for kids that are a difficult IV access, maybe the autistic child where you know you've got one chance at sedating in order to get your procedure done, IM ketamine really can come in handy and that you can deliver that medication and then in five minutes you have a patient where you can quickly accomplish the procedure you hope to. You just mentioned that IM ketamine has a longer recovery time. Let's talk a little bit more about recovery time. In the age of striving to minimize length of stay in the ED, we need to know the earliest time that we can send kids home after procedural sedation. How long do we need to monitor these kids for after procedural sedation, and when can they be discharged home? The different sedatives have different recovery times, and each kid metabolizes the medication differently, so it's a highly variable situation that can be hard to pin down. You definitely want a patient that can walk by themselves, can tolerate a PO fluid challenge, and then can be reliably monitored at home prior to discharge. We leave it to our nurses to be able to assess these patients to make sure they're ready for discharge. And indeed, it can be anywhere between three minutes for a nitrous sedation to 60 minutes for an IV ketamine sedation, up to 140 minutes for an IM ketamine sedation. Propofol, again, is a really quick turnaround as well. I think you have to take a good look at the patient and their recovery time to know when they're ready to go home. In the TREC guideline, it says, you know, monitor until the patient's able to perform their baseline developmentally appropriate activities, speech, motor, and cognitive, as well as tolerate oral intake. Yeah, so ketamine in particular can have the nausea and emesis that can happen during the recovery period. So making sure that the patient can tolerate a popsicle prior to discharge, I think, is a really important component of the sedation recovery period. I like to see the patient walk on their own and be able to talk to me about how they're feeling before I send them on their way. Also, really important, I think, with kids to make sure that the family's on board and that they're comfortable with the way the child is looking. You don't want to send a sleepy child home because some kids can have a prolonged recovery time, especially if you've done a couple of doses of the sedative or also added an opioid to that. Sometimes that can delay the recovery time and you really want them being able to do the things that you would expect developmentally from the child of that age, and then also be able to tolerate fluids prior to being discharged home. Okay, great. So this obese child had his fracture reduced, and he recovered nicely and went home, and everything turned out great. (laughs) 
So just to review a few of the take-home pearls that we talked about later in this case, first, the risk factors for a failed sedation, meaning hypoxia or apnea. So the risk factors are active upper respiratory tract infection. So even if that kidney's just got a cold, that's a risk for a failed sedation. Uh, if they have a history of obesity or sleep apnea or even a history of snoring, that's a risk for a failed sedation. If they're greater than seven years old, which is kind of surprising because you'd think that really it was the little ones that you'd worried about more for a failed sedation. And if they have an ASA class two or more. The other great thing that I learned from Dr. Drendel was about nitrous oxide, which I really had no clue about before. Nitrous oxide is great for anxiety-provoking procedures where you want a fast recovery time of just a few minutes. In studies of fracture reduction, it showed that nitrous oxide in combination with a hematoma block was actually equivalent to IV ketamine with faster recovery times. So if you don't have nitrous oxide in your department, that's maybe something you want to speak to your group about. Now, when it comes to ketamine and midazolam, remember that ketamine plus midazolam prolongs the recovery period. So if you have a procedure that you anticipate will take a long time, then you could consider midazolam. Remember that midazolam has not been shown to decrease the so-called emergence reactions with ketamine. And really, the emergence reactions really aren't as prevalent as we used to think they were. Next, we're going to go on to case two. Let's go on to a second case. So here it is. An 11-month-old girl falls out of the arms of her mother as mom trips down the stairs. The child hit her head on the edge of the stairs, lost consciousness for about one minute, and vomited several times afterwards. She comes into her ED with a GCS of 13 and no signs of basal skull fracture. A point-of-care ultrasound reveals no skull fracture, and you decide to send the child for a CT of her head. The nurse asks you how you'd like to sedate the child for the CT scan, as the child is quite agitated, although she doesn't appear to be in any significant pain. So, Dr. Drendel, what are your best options in general for sedation when sending kids for diagnostic imaging? And what about if you're worried about an intracranial injury or raised ICP? Sure, for the non-painful procedures... Distraction is probably my first approach because truly if it's not a painful procedure that they're going to have to undergo, and CAT scan definitely shouldn't be painful for the patient, if there's a way to distract them during that procedure, typically a very short period of time, that's going to be your most successful approach. Any child who's got an altered mental state that you're adding an analgesic or a sedative on top of that is going to blur the picture a bit for you. That might make it a little bit more difficult to get to the bottom of the diagnosis that you're trying to achieve. So if you can distract, that's extremely helpful when it comes to CAT scans. So you're back to using the iPhone for a game a lot of pediatric centers have visuals that they can actually send up to the ceilings over the CAT scan so that the kids can actually look at the overhead area while they're undergoing the CAT scan, which can be really effective as well. Um, if these aren't going to work, though, you do have to end up doing some type of sedative to be able to successfully accomplish the procedure that you need the patient to undergo. 
For me, my drug of choice is probably midazolam. There's a couple of different ways that you could deliver that midazolam. Historically, we've used oral midazolam, which has been a really effective approach. Typical dosing for that for me is 0.7 milligrams per kilogram and give that orally. Some resources suggest that you should use a lower dose, down as low as 0.5 milligrams per kilogram. But I'll tell you, the 0.7 milligrams per kilogram is very effective. And there's some studies that have used dosing up to 1 milligram per kilogram, maxing at 20 milligrams. And that will usually relax the child enough to be able to successfully do the procedure. Another way of delivering that midazolam would be an intranasal dose. That dose is 0.3 milligrams per kilogram, typically maxing around 10 milligrams. And that's really been shown to be effective. The group out in Seattle showed that that dose was associated with a good sedative effect with a quick onset. And for a procedure like that, that just might be the way to go. Intranasal midaz, eh? Yeah. Yeah, that sounds pretty simple. The onset is quite fast. How long do you usually wait after intranasal midaz to actually send them for their CT? Usually the intranasal dosing is in action within 7 to 10 minutes of dosing. So you want to be ready to go as soon as you dose. The oral dose, typically a little bit longer, more like 15 minutes before you have onset. And it's not as reliable as the intranasal dose in my experience. Okay, great. So the bottom line in general for sending kids for imaging and for non-painful procedures where you just want to sedate them, relieve their anxiety, intranasal midazolam sounds like probably the fastest and best choice. If you don't have intranasal midazolam, then oral midazolam is something that we've had a lot of experience with that would be the next best choice. The downside is that you will have a sedated patient afterwards and it will be a little bit more difficult to do reassessment. And I know our radiologists have been known to use pentobarbital as well. And that also has some respiratory depressing effects, but would be safe to be used with a patient with concerns for increased intracranial pressure. Okay, so there are options in case there's some sort of contraindication to midazolam. But again, it sounds like midazolam is probably overall the go-to medication for non-painful procedure sedation. Let's move on to our third case and our final case. It's a three-month-old who comes crashing into your resuscitation room, appearing mottled and lethargic with a heart rate of 190 and a temp of 39.5. On a quick history from the parents, there's no obvious source of infection, no travel history, but the child is unimmunized. An IO is placed, blood is drawn for a septic workup, and the child's resuscitated with normal saline boluses. A Foley catheter is placed, an IV secured, and broad-spectrum antibiotics are started. You call for the LP tray. So let's talk a little bit about pain and sedation management for LPs. Now, in adults, we generally inject a little bit of lidocaine at the LP site, and we just go for it. 
How do you suggest to our listeners to minimize pain and maximize comfort for the LP we perform for kids? Let's start with numbing the skin. What does the literature show when it comes to anesthetizing the skin for LPs in children? I think anesthetizing the skin for your lumbar puncture is one of the best things that you can do to ensure your success with doing that lumbar puncture. If you've got anesthetized skin, you're going to have a still patient and a still patient is going to really allow you to successfully do the lumbar puncture. I think LMX is a great option. It's got pretty quick onset within about 30 minutes. It numbs that site and has been shown to be associated with increased success with the procedure. There has been a study that showed the JTIP has also been successful at anesthetizing that site and doesn't require the 30 minutes for onset. Also, another option aside from the anesthetic on the skin is using sucrose, especially for those young babies. It's been shown to soothe them and reduce the motion and improve the success rate for the lumbar puncture for the young babies. Okay, yeah, oral sucrose we had talked about in the previous episode on pediatric pain management. LMX, I understand, is in quite common use across the U.S. In Canada, we don't use LMX as far as I know. What is the advantage of LMX over EMLA or LET, for example, in terms of anesthetizing the skin? Sure, LMX onset is within 30 minutes and reliably starts to have anesthetic effect within six to eight minutes. So it's that speed and onset that's really made it advantageous over the alternative topical anesthetics. And as we both know in the emergency department, the faster it is, the more we like it. And it definitely has been well adopted here in the U.S., Okay. So that's the anesthetizing the skin. What about family presence during an LP? We had talked about family presence during procedures in general and how you generally support having the family there to help reduce the anxiety of the child. What does the literature say about having family presence during a lumbar puncture? Lumbar puncture can be a procedure that is worrisome to families. I always give family the option of being present during the procedure. Some families find it really stressful to see their babies undergo those procedures. And in those situations, especially for those very young babies, this might be best for both the child and the parent for the parent to step out. But families have definitely kind of reap the benefits of being present and then they can console their child and understand the process of the procedure that the child underwent and has actually been shown to reduce their anxiety about the whole process. So I do advocate for having families who are interested in being present during procedures to actually have them present because they can be the extra at hand to soothe the patient, to give the pacifier because that nutritive suck has been shown to reduce the pain and anxiety that's associated with that procedure and gives the family a little bit of control and choice in that situation, which can also be quite helpful. I think the people doing the procedures often are worried that having their family present will actually reduce the chance of their procedural success, but studies actually show that 
having family presence does not increase the miss rate. And most families actually prefer to be present during those procedures. Okay. So let's say in this kitty, we've placed some LMX on the skin. We've got the family in there with a soother, maybe given some sucrose. Let's get on to a medication that you'd give for sedation for an LP. What's your medication of choice in this septic child? You know, Anton, for a baby that's three months old, I don't typically sedate. I definitely find that for the older kids, I end up needing to do more sedation. And that sedation is out of anxiety that the child's experiencing. So kids six months to five years of age, but even older, I'll use midazolam as a sedative to help accomplish the procedure. Both the intranasal dosing and the oral dosing can be really effective and helping reduce anxiety that's associated with that procedure. For older children, if you have access to nitrous oxide, nitrous oxide can be an excellent anxiolytic for the adolescent or teen who has to undergo a lumbar puncture and really reduces that anxiety and, again, leads to a very successful procedure. Okay, great. So we've gone through three cases, the FUSH, sedating for a CAT scan, as well as a lumbar puncture. And I think we've given the listeners a pretty good idea of what their options are and what they need to look out for and how they need to prepare. Dr. Drendel, what do you think is coming down the pipes in terms of future research? And what is exciting in the area of pediatric procedural sedation? What do you see in the future? I think the field of pediatric procedural sedation is really growing. There's growing evidence to support our practice. One thing that we are starting to look at is what the short-term effects are for procedural sedation. We're taking a look at not only the recovery time and trying to minimize the recovery time for kids, but then also following them at home once they've been discharged home. So what happens to those kids for the first week or two after they return home? There's some good post-operative studies that suggest that kids do have some regression in some behavioral changes that happen in that initial period after a surgical procedure. And we're investigating whether or not that's true after a procedural sedation that happens in the emergency department. Um, And there's some concern about ketamine and its effect on the growing and developing brain and whether that is something that we need to be worried about. And there's some great basic science work that's looking into that and balancing that against the effects of pain experience on kids because that in and of itself has been shown to have deleterious effects on outcomes as well. So I'm hopeful in the future that there's a balance between having good pain control and sedation, which leads to successful procedures, but also ultimately optimizes care once the kids go home, because that's our ultimate goal as well. Well, Dr. Drendel, thank you so much for all your words of wisdom. Good luck in your future research in this really important topic in emergency medicine. And I really appreciate your time coming on EM Cases. Thank you so much. It was so good to talk with you. All right. Take care. Have a good one.